Good day to our listeners out there and welcome back to another episode of the In Search podcast. In today's episode, Golshan interviews sociologist and anthropologist Afshan Golriz about decolonizing environmental research in Costa Rica. Before we jump in, please take a moment to rate and review our podcast in iTunes or your podcast player of choice. With that taken care of, let's jump right in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to In Search. Um, today is really special for me because I have my sister with me, Afshan Golriz, and uh, I love her research, and not just because she's my sister, but it's because it's really cool and um, interesting and, again, as usual, very different from my own. Um, but um, I think that you're going to really love this episode. How are you doing, Afsh? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm so excited to finally be sitting here with you. I know I've been asking you to come join for quite a while, but you're you're quite a busy woman. It's you're hard to uh, to to get down for a meeting. <laughs> I'm excited to be here. I'm uh, feeling pretty special to be on this podcast. I'm loving it. The feeling is definitely mutual. Me and the listeners uh, feel really special to have you on the podcast. So how are you doing? How's it? Uh, how's the COVID life been? You know, COVID life has been pretty good, I must say. Of course, there are the things that we all get tired of, but I kind of feel like as an academic, you get really used to the solitude. So uh, it's just more time to work and do research and do some painting and things like that. So... Yeah, totally. I know what you mean. I, I think I think one of the good things about this pandemic, it sounds so weird to say good things, but one of the things about it that has been beneficial for academics is the time that you have to actually write. You don't don't really think about how many social commitments you have until you can't socialize, right? And then you're like, wow, I have all this time to actually do my work now. Definitely. And I think ideally, if you could snap your fingers and be in all the places that you needed to be, in it wouldn't be so bad but it's the commute and all the time it takes especially with us having our schools in different in a different province there's a lot of commuting that goes on there to you know to teach to be present on campus to do whatever you need to do meetings and things like that so it's uh it's it's been kind of nice to be in one place for a while yeah totally and so can you just give our listeners a background about where you go to school and where you're doing your phd and your just your background of your um, field. I'm doing a PhD in social and cultural analysis uh, in sociology and anthropology at Concordia University in Montreal. I live in Toronto, which is why I say that I've been doing a commute. Um, and my background before that was uh, I did an undergrad and a master's in environmental studies uh, at, at the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University. Okay, great. All right, we can jump right into your research. Uh, so uh, as usual, I'm going to start with the big nutshell question. So what is your research about? So in a nutshell, uh, my research is about decolonizing environmental conservation research in Costa Rica. Um, but really, to elaborate on that and to explain what I'm aiming to do with this research... I think the best way to tell you about what I'm doing now is to tell you about how I got there. So um, I've been doing research there for about 10 years now. Uh, it's in Volcán, in the province of Punta Arenas, which is in the south of Costa Rica. And I went there initially as an undergraduate student and then later again for my master's fieldwork 
And basically, you know, I went in there as uh, as a young researcher and I went to what everybody knows of Costa Rica, right, which is paradise, a tropical paradise, the green uh, land of conservation, which in a lot of ways can be true. Uh, but my initial perspective of it was that this is a very uh, a very green country until I went into the south of, south of the country and I saw uh, the pineapple plantations. And uh, essentially Del Monte, which I'm sure you've heard of, um, is a, it's a big uh, North American company that makes tropical, pr- uh, tro- that produces tropical fruit. Um, Del Monte has a subsidiary in Costa Rica, which is called Pindeco, it's Pineapple Development Corporation. And uh, they have massive monoculture of pineapple in in the entire country, but especially in that region. So when I first went there, I saw this pineapple. And of course, there are a lot of things that are devastating um, toward the environment with pineapple plantations. So uh, anything from, you know, deforestation, soil erosion, contamination, water contamination, all these things. And I'm there as as a young environmental researcher, and I see all of the things that the pineapple monoculture is doing to uh, the land uh, and alternatively to the health of the people. And uh, so what I decided to go back after my undergraduate research, I decided to go back for my ma- for my master's research and do research on environmental conservation. And essentially, my idea was, you know, how do I emancipate the people from this my this pineapple monoculture um, and from this company how do i free them from the hold that this company has against them and how do i help to conserve the land that this company has destroyed um which you know i'm sure a lot of people are listening and thinking whoa that's that's really problematic but uh this is really when i say decolonizing environmental research this is what i mean by it so this perspective that I had uh, as a master's student, mostly as an, as an undergraduate student, and slowly over the last 10 years, my perspective has started to change on it, um, is very colonial in nature. And mainly I say that because it's, it's rooted in, in a few assumptions. So first of all, it's rooted in the assumption that people are not free or that they're in need of emancipation. And more than that, that they're in need for me to emancipate them as a researcher of the global north. Uh, second, that they don't know what's happening to them. So they're being, um, they're being duped by the company, they're being brainwashed by the company into believing that they're okay or that the company is good for them. Uh, and, and third, that they're not doing anything, that they don't understand environmental conservation themselves and that they're not doing anything to conserve uh, their land and their environment. So when you have these colonial assumptions going in, ultimately the result of what you're doing and the type of research that you're producing is rooted in colonial assumptions. And my research, what I'm trying to do through this, is to decolonize the way that we think about this kind of research and the way that we approach environmental conservation research in Costa Rica specifically, but I hope that it will be applicable to uh, other parts of Latin America and other parts of the global south, possibly. Yeah, super interesting what you're saying. And so just to reiterate your like nutshell kind of sentence that you 
um, told me when I asked you is that, you know, you're doing decolonizing environmental conservation research. So which means that you're decolonizing the research that's been done in the field of environmental conservation. Is that correct? That's right. Okay, and so um, uh, tell me a little bit more about your transition. Tell me a little bit more about, you know, you as an undergraduate wanting to do this sort of like emancipatory work um, and being very sort of, um, you know, optimistic, I guess, and your, your, your visions, your, you know, your perspectives, your thoughts at the time, if you can recall, and how that slowly shifted. If you can tell me more of like a sort of general sense about it. Yeah, of course. So so I think a lot of it came from being in Costa Rica. So I've been there, I've been going there for the last decade or so. Uh, every time I stay for anywhere between several weeks to several months, um, I have, you know, a lot of friends there right now. I, uh, I've kept in touch very closely with everyone from the community. So uh, it, it was a very immersive experience and a very immersive research over a very long period of time. And I think what affected me the most in this mental shift was the conversations that I had with a lot of people. So um, as a young, I would say somewhat radical environmentalist, uh, there was a sociological and an anthropological nuance that was missing from the way that I did research. And as I talked to people and I asked them about the pineapple plantations and about Pindeco, I, I was looking for certain things and I didn't know this at the time. So I was either looking for people to secretly tell me that they were in trouble and that they needed help so that I could then go in and save them. Uh, Or I was looking for signs of brainwash. So I was looking for signs of them telling me that, you know, they, they, they don't see anything that's wrong with the company and the company is okay and they have jobs. What I didn't really expect to find was an affinity toward the company. So I didn't really expect people to talk to me with, uh, Gratitude, possibly, but really almost like a love for the company. Uh, and, and one of my research, one of my uh, participants actually told me, you know, Pindeco arrived and it was like a father to everybody. And so this father-like figure, this patriarch of the, of the community, um, that I didn't expect to see. Because people are talking about it in ways that are more than just economic. The influence that it has had on people's lives has been social. It's been political. Uh, A lot of people's social lives and social circles are are connected to Pindeco. And a lot of people's livelihoods, of course, are dependent on Pindeco. And in ways that are more than uh, just, just money. Um, so one of the ways that that Pindeco has affected the town, for example, is that in building roads that it needed to be able to bring in its machinery and things like that, um, that it needed for its pineapple plantations, there have also been a connection to the rest of the country, roads that have been paved for people to be able to go in and out of the community, um, to larger cities and things like that. So it's completely shifted the way that people function uh, in the community. 
And I really think that it was listening to people and trying to understand over several years that this was not this false consciousness. It's not a false assumption that Pindeco was doing something for them, but that it really has had a lot of positive impact on their lives. So uh, I would say that that's, you know, mainly where my own mental shift came from was allowing enough time to go by to understand that um, I was the one that needed to to understand that I, I had a lot of assumptions and that uh, I was the one that had the false understanding of what was happening. It's so interesting to hear, because I, I was going to say the word false consciousness as well as you're saying this, right? Because it's just listening to you talk about it. It's I feel that it's almost especially as academics who do social justice studies, right? So if you do any kind of social justice study, you're sort of programmed to deconstruct always, right? And it can become really problematic when you start to deconstruct the words of your participants with like this higher than thou mentality. So here you have people telling you like, actually, we don't look at Pindeco as being this, this, you know, um, evil corporation that's ruining our lives, but rather that we depend on it. Your social justice, like North American academically trained brain automatically thinks, oh, well, you just, you know, you're, you're under the guise of false consciousness or, well, you just dependent on the company and you, you start to sort of, um, analyze above what people are telling you rather than to actually listen to the words that they're telling you. So I want to know a little bit more about this. So can you give us some more examples about the kind of things that people would tell you and um, when it was that you really started, it really started to click for you that like, oh, wait, this is not, this is me imposing my beliefs. Yeah. um, You know, Everything that you're saying is is so on point with um, with what I'm trying to articulate here. Uh, it it's amazing how much time it really takes to listen. I think that's one of the things that has been. I've really realized that in order to be able to do any kind of environmental conservation research is what I will speak to because that's my field, but I'm sure it could be applied more broadly. When you're doing research that is so focused on a community, one of the things that I've really come to appreciate is time. The the investment of time that it takes to really be able to understand something and living in a community and being able to understand the reliance. Um, so, you know, if somebody tells you that a company is reliant on, uh, a community is reliant on a company, you're not you'll understand it or I understood it possibly to the extent of, okay, well, they get money from it, right? They, they get money and then they can, they can eat. I hadn't, I couldn't understand until I actually lived there what that really, what reliance really meant and what that connectedness really meant. So one anecdote or one story I can tell you from that is that uh, the last time I was there um, a couple of years ago there was uh, there was a hurricane so I I don't remember the name of it I think it was Tropical Storm Nate actually Um, and it hit Costa Rica and it was it, it affected Volcan not to the extent of there were neighboring regions that were just completely devastated by the storm um, but Volcan, there was more of a fear 
because it, it was it was very close to us. So I was living there at the time, and uh, we were being told to. Um, I, I remember getting home. I was out. I got home, and then all of my friends started messaging me and saying, you know, um, collect water. We're going to lose wa- water. We're going to lose water. And so uh, I started collecting water, you know, in, in my laundry bin and in uh, any kind of tin or bucket or anything that I could find um, to drink, to cook with. To, I, we didn't know how much water we, were, we didn't know how long we would be left without water. So we're all scrambling and it was my first time going through anything like this. So I'm trying to collect water. Um, and then we did end up losing water and we were like this for several days. And so, you know, I'm, we're bathing ourselves with a cup full of water and we're, um, you know, really calculating every drop of water that we drink because uh, we didn't know how long we had to make it last for. Um, And then after a few days, it had really gotten to this point of, you know, everybody's getting really desperate for water now. And not only that, but the the bridges and things like that had collapsed. So we didn't really know when we would be able to have access to sort of the outer world, to the outside world, to be able to get anything like this. Um, And after a few days, you know, you see everybody's sort of the kids are sent off to bike around to find water from streams that are clean enough to drink and all these things. Um, and uh, we, I was at uh, one of uh, my friend's houses and I was with the kids and we were sort of, um, we were, I think we were trying to bake cookies or something or seeing if we needed water to bake cookies. And then as we're there, we hear the pipes start to make noise and the kids start calling their grandmother to come into the kitchen and then the grandmother comes into the kitchen and we're all gathered around this sink uh, in their house just listening to the pipes because we're about to you know maybe hopefully see water coming out of it and then sure enough the water starts coming out of the pipes and it was this I can't explain beyond that what sentiment that gave us all um but we had, it's like we had just been saved, you know, from, from this drought that we were experiencing. And the, res, the reason for it was that Pindeco had replaced one of the pipes that the storm had taken away. And it had given water to the whole town. So when I say there's a reliance or an affinity toward the company, unless you're living there and you've spent enough time living there and you've experienced some of the things that I'm not going to pretend to you know, actually have the same reality uh, as anybody who is living there, but uh, possibly some similar experiences. Unless you're there, you're not really going to understand what the company can mean to the town and what that reliance can really look like. Yeah, totally. That makes a lot of sense. And that was a very good anecdote as well. And, um, I, I know that you've written like a creative piece about this too that that I've had the privilege to hear before and I wish I had asked you to bring it because I think the listeners would have really loved to hear at least some of your sort of um, in the moment raw reactions to this like you know um, drought in this in the town and um, maybe maybe you can uh, record it and then and give it to us on a later date so that we could share it with the listeners. Sure. So um, 
I want to kind of, I want to ask you a question that could also lead to your main argument, um, which is a, kind of a provocative question. And so what I want to do is, is play devil's advocate for a second, right? And say, so I'm sure that, so you're, you're looking at this and you're saying, hmm, maybe we should look at Pindeco not as being this kind of like evil corporation, right? But I'm sure that you're going to be met with researchers who are going to look at you and raise an eyebrow and say, well, aren't you denying all the exploitation that's happening with Pindeco then? Right. So what about all of this deforestation that they're causing? And what about all the other negative things that they're causing? And is the point of your research to then say to not pay attention to those? Or how would you sum up the main argument of your dissertation um, keeping those kind of criticisms in mind. So I'm glad you asked that. Um, and the reason why I'm glad you ask it is because for me, it's actually, it's, it's very sense. It's a very sensitive topic to have arrived at this point in my research, because initially, you know, having done two degrees in environmental studies, and of course my research being very heavily concentrated on environmental conservation now, and not only my research, but my passion, you know, environmental conservation is my baby. And I wish to be involved in that for a very, very long time. So, um, it does make me constantly question whether, especially having to present the research to other academics, I'm constantly met with this internal struggle of, you know, did I cross over? Have I switched sides? Am I not a, a valid environmentalist anymore? Um, and really, the what I'm trying to argue is not that there aren't environmental problems. There are tons of environmental problems with the company, as there are with any kind of mass production of this sort. Um, I'm not even saying that that the town would have never... I mean, this is a whole other argument, but would the town have been better off if Pindeco had never arrived to begin with? Maybe. That's a possibility. That's not what I'm arguing. Um, and and in, my, in the final product of my dissertation, you know, there will be a lot of information about exactly all of the ways in which the company can indeed be exploitative and uh, both toward people and uh, and toward the land. What I'm trying to say though is that regardless of that, there is a reality here. And the reality is that the company exists right now and the reality is that there is a reliance on it and having been in the community for decades now, there is an interconnectedness between the people and the company that you can't just uproot now. You can't just come in and yank the company out of the town and expect things to be okay because you've solved their environmental problems. So over the years, there has definitely been a generational shift in the way that people interact with their land. Um, and, you know, from it, it, there's definitely been a shift from a producer culture to a consumer culture. So this shift makes it impossible to just for the solution to the environmental problems, the very real environmental problems that exist in the town for the solution to those problems to be to just take the company out 
of the community and hope that the environmental problems are going to disappear with the disappearance of the company. So really, what I'm trying to say is we need to get in there. We need to, if we're going to do research in in Costa Rica, but you know, if we're going to do research as researchers of the global north, if we're going to do research in other countries, we need to first understand what we're doing research on, what local perspectives are, what local solutions are. So what's being done currently in the town? You know, is it really true that people don't know what's happening? Is it true that people are unaware of environmental problems? It's not. It's not true. So understand what local perspectives are, what the knowledge is, what they're doing, and contribute to what's already being done rather than coming in as an outside researcher and saying, hold on, I know what's happening to you. You don't understand what's happening to you. I'm going to come in as a researcher, you know, from Concordia University or from another Canadian or American university. And because of all of the knowledge and information that I have, I understand what your reality is that you would otherwise be unaware of. And I'm going to explain to you what you need to be emancipated. And I'm going to explain to you what you need to conserve your land. Um, that to me is not the solution and that is a colonial way of approaching the the problem and so what i'm proposing to do is let's go in there let's spend the time let's invest the time that needs to be dedicated uh, to understanding what's happening and let's play alongside the community uh, if we're going to do if we really must do research elsewhere Let's do it along with the community in the projects that have already been initiated there and contribute to that rather than imposing something that might not really be applicable to any kind of um, real tangible solution in that community. Totally. Yeah. And I find usually this is the point where I sort of just like reiterate what you you're saying, but you're, you're just so clearly mapping it out for us that I, I don't even necessarily think that um, I need to be doing that. Um, but, you know, just to sort of bring it back from the beginning. Right. And and and, um, you know, talking about decolonial environmental research. Right. So so you know, on the one hand, you're sort of making this like meta argument of previous research that's been done um, or, or ongoing research that's being environmental conservation that's being done globally. And what you're saying is, well, based on this case study that you have with Volcan, um, you, uh, you know, you're seeing this problematic trend where I like ideas are being imposed from the top down on what solutions are for environmental conservation in any given town or in any given country, but it's not grassroots. And so the, the, you know, colonial part of it is the white savior narrative part of saying, you know, you're under the false consciousness and these three assumptions that you sort of brought up at the beginning that people are not free people are being duped and that they don't know what to do to un to make themselves free um, or to unchain themselves, right? Very kind of colonialist assumptions to begin with. And then the sort of decoloniality of it for you uh, is that you're advocating for local perspectives, grassroots perspectives, bottom-up perspectives. Um, 
And so now I kind of want to move into asking you to dissect the dissertation for us. So that's your overarching argument. And now you're doing this, you're not doing an article-based uh, dissertation. You're doing a, a book, a manuscript. Um, and so kind of give us the overview, the, the breakdown of what the chapters are before we, we go into uh, each one in more depth. So the dissertation will be divided into three chapters, three main themes. So the first one, we're looking at history. So the, the social, political, economic history of the country uh, and also of the town of Volcan specifically. And then the second chapter, we really delve into Pindeco. So what is Pindeco? When did it come in? Uh, what have all of the impacts, the environmental impacts been? What have the social impacts been? How is it tied to the community? Um, sort of everything you want to know about Pindeco. Uh, we're going to look at things also like labor unions and uh, all of those social implications of, of the company. And then the last chapter is existing environmental conservation. So um, what's happening currently in Volcan and in, in Costa Rica. And your third chapter is about existing, um, sorry, when you say in Volcan, uh, Volcan and Costa Rica is about the grassroots stuff that's happening, not the research that's being done by other like North American researchers. Yes. Okay. Got it. Okay. So let's then jump into those three chapters. So tell us about the history. Uh, this is super interesting. Give us this history lesson of, uh, you know, what's going on. Uh, how did Pindeco even come here? Um, how, how did we arrive at this research that you're doing? So there's a lot to say about uh, Costa Rican history. But here, what we really want to talk about is the Costa Rican history that is specifically re related to the arrival of uh, Pindeco and the arrival of pineapple productions, um, and even more so the dependency on it. So really the question we're trying to answer is why can't we just take Pindeco out of the country? And we're trying to answer it by saying, well, there is a very intricate history that goes behind the arrival of the company to begin with. And without understanding that history, we can't really understand why we can't just take it out. So why did Pindeco come in in the first place, why was pineapple introduced to the country in the first place? So if we're going back to, you know, early to mid 1800s, so around the 1830s, coffee was the main contributor to Costa Rican economy. Uh, but around the end of the 19th century, bananas were introduced to the country as something that would yield more export value, um, higher export value. So we introduce bananas, and with the arrival of bananas, one of the things that uh, becomes really important in this uh, in this story is the arrival of different technologies, new agricultural technologies. Um, and the reason why that's important is because with the introduction of these technologies, it really paved the way for foreign multinationals to come into the country. So we want to think about. Uh, small farmers before this producing a lot of different crops um, and with the arrival of the United Fruit Company and the start of banana plantations 
a lot of small farmers didn't want to or or they weren't equipped to compete with the larger companies that are arriving because of the types of production. Um, and, you know, this is technology for production. This is technology for deforestation. There's massive amounts of land that need to be deforested to produce these large crops. Uh, and it sort of creates the situation where small farmers can no longer compete at that scale. Um, so with the so with the arrival of foreign multinationals, so in 1898 uh, is when the United Fruit Company arrived into the country. Um, and this was, uh, we, we've talked about it a little bit before. This is what, uh, the story of the United Fruit Company of the banana plantations is what really, uh, paved the way for the story of pineapple plantations. The other thing that we want to look at is, you know, so why did we move away from bananas? Why did, why pineapple then? How did we go from pineapple to bananas? And pine and bananas are still being produced in the country, uh, and there's still a huge, uh, contributor to Costa Rican economy, um, even bigger than pineapple, uh, if I'm not mistaken, still. But bananas also required a lot of deforestation, and uh, at, in the way that they were being produced in the country, they really only had a productive life of about seven years. Um, and they were, at the time, they were on the Caribbean coast, and slowly they had to move completely to uh, the Pacific coast of the country because there was disease and plagues and the, the country was not, and the producers were not equipped yet to deal with it. So it left a lot of the land sort of devastated and they were not able to recover that land and they had to move to different, different uh, parts of the country. Um, cattle is another thing. So if we can just pause the, the banana story for a second to also introduce cattle, which was introduced around the same time as pineapple, because this is when pineapple is starting to come in. Um, cattle was something that was produced for local consumption for a very long time in the country. Um, but, you know, until the 1970s around, it was really only produced for local consumption. But after the, the World War, so now we're looking at the global economy of it, um, production, uh, con meat consumption in North America had started to rise so much that it started to affect, of course, production in other countries. So we're looking at meat consumption in North America after the World War. So now, a, a couple of decades later, we see that influence in Costa Rica and uh, in, in possibly other tropical countries. Um, the production starts to change from local consumption and, and um, produ production for local consumption to production for uh, export purposes strictly. So the problem, though, with cattle is, again, the amount of deforestation. So um, around the 1970s, we lost 65% of forest cover in Costa Rica in just 40 years. And then, and it just continued after that. So uh, there were certain pro certain production methods that were not very sustainable and that they, they couldn't continue in the same way. So the other problem with this is that in uh, with the 
production of cattle, it actually did not yield all that much revenue. So now we find ourselves in a place where the types of production that are happening are uh, very hard on the environment and they're not bringing, they're destroying forests that could otherwise be uh, economically valuable and they're not bringing in that much money. So in the 1980s, as a result of all of this, um, Costa Rica experiences its worst ever debt crisis. And as a result of this debt crisis, the IMF encourages Costa Rica to start producing more uh, exportable products like tropical fruit. So we've got bananas. We have our problems with bananas that we talked about before. Now we're looking at producing more uh, tropical fruit for export. At the same time, Del Monte had its most, uh, it's the, the majority of its production in Hawaii. At this time, Hawaii is, was moving toward more of an ecotourism economy. Um, and I'm not going to go too much into the history of Hawaii because I, I don't know it very well and I don't want to, to butcher it. But strictly um, with regards to Del Monte, Del Monte uh, Hawaii's economy was moving away from tropical fruit production, and so pineapple production in Hawaii was really um, declining. So Del Monte decides that they need to relocate their pineapple uh, production. So in 1978, they come into Costa Rica. So now we're really looking at the history of Costa Rica, the economy of of the country and then the history of Del Monte as a company and how the the two really um, intersected in in the perfect moment. So in 1978, pineapple comes into um, into the country. There were a, there was a lot of experience from the banana plantations that contributed to more of a smooth transition uh, with banana plant with the pineapple plantations. So now the, the existing structures that were previously put in place for banana plantations uh, lent themselves really well to pineapple plantations, which is another tropical fruit that was being produced, not to mention uh, the use of the machinery, uh, the way that the companies were set up in terms of labor. Um, all of this really contributed to a smooth transition to pineapple production in the country. Super interesting. So what I hear you saying then is that, you know, there's already a, there's a precedence there with banana companies already being in Costa Rica. Um, and, um, with banana production already being something that's popular and tried and true. And so it's already, the precedent's already there for pine, for Pindeco to set up their, their, pineapple uh, exports in the same way that they've been doing with bananas. On the other hand, now you have the cattle that's being produced that's really not economically viable. And so you have this like push from the IMF to be continuing the export of exotic fruit um, from countries like Costa Rica to the global world. 
Okay, so that's chapter one. So you're sort of giving us this historical overview. Um, and I think I'll stop you there for the history because I just want to know more about the rest of your chapters. And I, I especially want to ask you a lot about your methodologies because I know you've done a decade of research on this. And so and I'm sure I know this is um, going to be something that our listeners are going to want to listen to as well. Um, so let's just move then to your second article. So, you know, your second article is what is Pindeco, right? That's that's basically what it's about. So tell us about your second article. Or sorry, your second chat. I'm sorry, I do article-based work, and so I, I kind of um, am comparing to my own research. But your second chapter, rather. Yeah. So the second chapter is about uh, Pindeco. So we talked a little bit about how Pindeco came to exist in the country to begin with, um, and pineapple plantation in general. But now we're really speaking about the company specifically. Um, and before I say that, I'll also add that in the history chapter, we're going to look at the history of Volcan specifically as well. So we're looking at the history of Costa Rica as a whole. We're looking at the history of the United Fruit Company and banana plantations. And then we're looking at the history of Volcan and how Volcan came to be, um, who the first, uh, the first families were to settle into Volcan to begin with, um, and how much it has changed from when Volcan first started, which was, you know, no more than about, I want to say about 150 years ago. It's not a very long history uh, for that community. So we're really tracing the history back of that community and then situating the presence of Pindeco within that history. So now we're looking at uh, chapter two, Pindeco. Um, what does Pindeco do? How much, uh, how much pineapple does it produce in that region? And uh, what are the impacts of this pineapple production? That kind of conversation, that's... Uh, that's what's going to contribute to what we were talking about earlier, which was, uh, you know, this conserv this conversation of um, aren't you ignoring all of the things that Pindeco is actually doing to the environment or uh, socially in terms of labor relations and things like that. So in, in this chapter, we're going to talk about, we talk about all of that. So we talk about, um, what the environmental impact has been of Pindeco uh, and what the social impact has been. But then we're also looking at what Pindeco means to the community. How do people talk about Pindeco? What kinds of social implications does the presence of Pindeco have in the community? How do we find a balance between these ends of the spectrum of how Pindeco has affected the community. Okay, so tell us, so what has the impact been and what is it that you're hearing from the community? So, so let's look at how much land Pindeco has so that we can just get a picture of uh, how big it is and how influential and impactful the presence of the company has been on the community. Um, we want to look at, so for example, and I'll, I'll give you a stat from 2013. So uh, I, I'm going to go ahead and say it, it's probably higher than this now. Um, the pineapple industry 
had more than 110,000 acres of land dedicated to pineapple monoculture uh, in the country. And in the Volcan region, formally, we're looking at over uh, 12,000 acres of land, but the informal estimate, so this is what, you know, um, people and workers and people who've been close to the community the informal estimate of how much land Pindeco has in the Volcan region, or had in 2013, uh, was something like 35,000 acres. So we want to think about the fact that Costa Rica is not a very big country to begin with, and we're only talking about a very small region in the south of the country. Um, And if you want to picture how big 35,000 acres of land is, we're looking at something like 26,000 football fields. So 26,000 football fields of pineapple is what we're dealing with. Right. I just want to interrupt you for a second because this kind of recalls to me and like, you know, being privileged enough to be your sister. A lot of the times when you tell me about these things, it recalls conversations that we've had through the years about this. And so I'm just wondering if you can share with the listeners um, sort of your initial insights of going into Volcan. And, um, you know, I remember during your, you know, emancipatory phase when none of the family was allowed to consume any form of pineapple um probably i would say until very recently um pineapples were off limits uh to anyone that knew afshan and and so the way that she would always start by by convincing you to not ever eat another pineapple is by telling you the story of the land um and and what her initial reaction was going into volcan and and um, you know, how she sort of conceptualized all of this, um, the, the extent of this pineapple uh, <laughs> plantation sites. So tell us about that. Thank you for recalling my very tumultuous relationship with pineapple over the many, many years. Uh, yeah, so initially when I went into Volcan, uh, I, was, I was on the field course and our TA had told us that uh, we're go- we're gonna arrive at the pineapples. So you know, often e- even within the country, pineapple becomes this character. Okay, la piña, the pineapple. It's it's this it's this character, and in s- many narratives, um, it, it's the antagonist, right? So we had been told about the pineapple, and we had been told that we're gonna see the pineapple, and everybody's sort of on this bus. Um, waiting to arrive at the pineapple. And when we arrived in the, the Buenos Aires region, um, which is the, the canton or the municipality in which Volcan is situated, I'm looking around me, and so you start to enter this very rural area. And I'm looking around me, and I'm waiting for the pineapple, but all I can see is just these fields of green like tall grass around me. And so at first I think I'm looking at pineapple and then I realize that we drive for 15, 20 minutes, you know, pretty high speed through through this, this rural area. And I'm kind of looking at my TA and I ask him eventually, like, listen, we've been driving for a really long time. When are we going to see the pineapple? And he tells me, you're looking at it. So I realized that you know, what I had been looking at for the last 20 minutes was not grass. Um, it wasn't just fields of tall grass. It was, in fact, just th- 
thousands upon thousands of acres of pineapple. So there really is pineapple as far as the eye can see um, when, when, you're, when we're talking about um, monocultures of this sort. Great, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's it's, it's some it's a story that's sort of been um, imprinted in my mind every time I look at a pineapple. So I'm I'm glad that the listeners now also have this kind of image. But the other image that you drew for us was this this uh, twenty six thousand football fields in Volcan alone. Um, so so yeah. So you're saying so that that goes. Uh, hand in hand with sort of what the impact of Pindeco has been. So I'll let you continue. Sorry for the interruption. Yeah, no problem. So, uh, so the 26,000 football fields. Now this is pineapple production that belongs to Pindeco. Um, some of what we want to think about is the fact that before the arrival of Pindeco, the land people owned the land. So, um, it was a community that consisted of small farmers that did um, their own farming, not necessarily pineapple, but, you know, whether it was cattle or coffee or other types of product, um, it, they, they were locally owned pieces of land. And when Pindeco arrived, they bought the land from local people and uh, started their own productions on it. So, of course, when you produce this much pineapple, when you're producing 26,000 football fields worth of pineapple, uh, there are often a lot of unnatural methods that are applied. And, you know, aside from the extensive deforestation, there are other environmental impacts at different stages of pineapple production. So um, there's soil erosion, there's contamination, excessive use of chemicals, uh, irrigation, like the amount of water that it takes to be able to, to keep these plants alive um, and to produce enough fruit that would be worth exporting and then the export itself. So you're, you, know, you can only imagine how much devastation, uh, env- environmental degradation goes into pineapple production. On top of that, the deforestation doesn't just stop at, you know, the, the forest is cut and habitat is lost. And as a result, you know, there's um, species diversity that's lost and um, all of the, the initial things that come to mind with, with deforestation. We're also thinking about the Rio Volcan, which is the, the Volcan River, um, that a lot of people were, were very dependent on and that is still a huge, uh, it's very important to the community in, in Volcan, but has a very different significance. So we're, we're looking at something that before um, was something that people would fish in uh, and it, it was very rich in its species diversity. Now, the, because of the deforestation, there is a lot of chemical runoff that's not filtered through the forest cover that used to be there. And so now you've got a lot of chemical runoff from the pineapple plantations that's going s- straight into the river. And so the river now is not something that anybody would really dream drinking from or fishing in, um, at least not in its, in its main parts. So that's just to give you a brief idea of what kinds of things we look at when we talk about the uh, environmental devastation 
we we also look at social relationships and this this is twofold so on the one hand we're looking at the relationships at uh, the labor relationships within the company um and we're really looking at different perspectives of it so on the one hand we're talking about labor relations um and the the exploitative nature of that so low wages long hours um questionable health impacts and circumstances in terms of safety equipment and things like that on the other hand we're talking about uh social relations in terms of how people's social lives and social circles are so interconnected with the company so um rec centers community events schools football fields soccer fields things like that um when i say football i i am i mean soccer soccer is huge in the community and there are a lot of social uh gatherings and events that revolve around the existence of these kinds of structures all of these structures are put in by pindeco social events are organized oftentimes by pindeco whether it's for the workers whether it's um for the family of the workers something around 90% of people who are employed in Volcan are either directly or indirectly employed by Pindeco. So whether you're somebody who's working in the packaging plant of Pindeco, packing up pineapples, whether you're working in the actual fields producing the pineapple, um whether you're a mechanic that's working on the the uh Pindeco equipment or even if you're a school teacher who's working at the local school your students are often the children of the pindeco workers so without pindeco the workers would not be in the community the children would not be sent to school teachers would not be employed mechanics would not be employed um so you can really see how everybody's livelihood or the majority of the people's livelihood depends on the company. The other thing that we're looking at are things like movements, strikes, things like that against the against the company and how that has panned out, how there have been people who have been shunned from the community um if they've been part of movements for Pindeco and this really directly relates also to again pineapple uh sorry banana plantations and the history of movements that have happened um within the, within the banana industry in the past and the fear that that has instilled in people in the pineapple industry um so people who have been completely shunned from their their friends or their colleagues and stuff like that for for not uh being for for being against the company or not being able to go to a certain event or something like that for um for not being involved in the company so uh there are there are these intricacies that get really interesting when you start to look at all of the ways in which Pindeco is uh very impactful in social relations within the community
So we look at the different impacts that Pindeco has, the environmental impact, the social impact, uh, and we look more closely at the personal stories that we're told, the affinity that people have toward the company. Uh, and it's not always an affinity. So of course, we're looking at you know hundreds of conversations over the years. We're looking at interviews um, with, with people in the community. And we're really just trying to get a more realistic picture of what Pindeco means to people um, and how it has impacted local people's lives more personally over the years. I just want to clarify something. So, you know, when you talk about, so you drew all these impacts for us just now, right? Uh, we talked about the land. Um, you know, we talked about the 26,000 soccer fields or sorry, football fields. Uh, we talked about the, uh, you talked about the personal relationships and the ways that, you know, 90% of the, the, um, residents of Volcan are directly or indirectly, um, high or sorry, employed by Pindeco. So we talked about this like very intricate dependency on the company and we talked about all these exploitative effects. And so these, I would say are the, probably the effects that you were well aware of prior to going in or, or even still hadn't changed your mind really about, um, you know, the image of Pindeco as this like big bad company, uh, that's sort of exploiting at all costs, the, it's re the residents of Volcan. And now what you're starting to tell us uh, through this realistic picture, to quote you, is the, the personal narratives that, that are coming out from your interviews. And we'll talk more about how you collected these interviews in a bit. Um, but is that what I is is this? is this contrast the emancipatory Afshan now coming face to face with the local voices? Is this the moments that we've arrived at? Mostly, yes. Uh, but also, I think all of the social intricacies that go into it, those are things that are not, that are not necessarily visible um, at first sight. So before going into the field, it's hard to see exactly all of the ways in which Pindeco is socially involved in the communities, all of the structures that have been put in place by Pindeco or all of the social rela relations that are created both directly with the company and within the community as a result of the presence of the company. These are all things that uh, arose from years of research there and being involved uh, in the community and, and hearing these stories. Okay, got it. So tell us about the stories. So I think the main thing to that we hear in these stories of the company, and again, I don't want to paint the picture like everybody who talks about Pindeco talks about it, like, oh, Pindeco, my, you know, my friend, my love. It's not, that's not, in every scenario, if you're really doing ethnographic work and you're really spending a lot of time and you're having lots of conversations, you're going to hear different perspectives on everything. Um, but what, what stands out in the stories is that you don't really hear that perspective of Pindeco, the antagonist. Pindeco becomes a little bit more of a character within the town that people... Uh, have had different experiences with some good, some bad, um, but mostly that the community is very reliant on, mostly that uh, the community can't really see themselves without anymore. Um, there are changes 
that people would like to see within Pindeco. There are uh, there are impacts that local people will attribute directly to the arrival of Pindeco, like uh, environmental changes and things like that. Um, but mostly, it's a member of the community. And that's the perspective that really comes out. And that is what I really try to delve into in this research, is who is this character? Who is this community member? And how do we see all of the facets that there are to see about this character uh, and how do how do we not see it in only one perspective got it got it so so basically if i can uh tell me if i'm putting words into your mouth here but what i what i hear you saying is you know like basically your second chapter is telling us yes there are these environmental impacts but the main takeaway is that there are intricacies, intricacies, intricacies to the point that you kind of have to shift the way to uh, of looking at uh, of, at Pindeco, not through this top down approach of company controlling people, but company intricately um, and inextricably linked to people's lives in a ways in a way that for better or for worse cannot just be pulled out or changed, but is there. Okay, great. Um, okay, so I want to move to your third chapter then, uh, because you this this is where you kind of shift to the grassroots local perspectives, and this is where you tell us about the environmental conservation that's being done on the ground um, with or without the help of external, especially North American sort of researchers um, or companies. Yeah. So the third chapter. Uh, looks at so on the one hand we are looking at conservation initiatives within the the country so on a national level what are the institutions that are put in place for environmental conservation so you've got all kinds of institutions that uh, are nationally funded uh that look at things like, for example, when a company like Pindeco wants to clear cut a new piece of land, um, or if they need to burn a piece of land after the production is over um, for reasons of plagues and things like that, um, they need permits to be able to do this. So there are systems that are put in place to monitor the type of production that takes place in the country. And that is just a very, um, that's a very small example of what can be done on a national level. And of course, there are, there are critiques of it. There are things that go well. There are other things that don't go so well and don't go as planned. Um, but it's just to say that this is not, it's not just a free-for-all. In the country, there are systems that are put in place to monitor and to measure the impacts um, of the these companies um, of, of foreign multinationals and of other agricultural companies within the country. So that's one. That's that's one thing that we're looking at. What is that structure? And then we want to come into the community and look at you know on a municipal level in the Canton of Buenos Aires. And uh, on a very local level in the community of Volcan, what is being done 
presently. So on a very local level, we have a recycling program that started through uh, two individuals who would just take time out of their own schedule and borrow a, ca- a truck from an acquaintance. Uh, these two individuals were Felipe and Ivan, who unfortunately has passed away, um, but the Fundacion is in his name and in, in his honor. Uh, his efforts and Felipe's efforts were to gather all of the recyclings, um, all the recyclables within the community and take it to a recycling center in a near a nearing city. So now the idea is that this small recycling project that started within the community of Volcan is now the the initiative is being uh, expanded into the canton of Buenos Aires, uh, where a recycling center, the project is hopefully if all goes well, that a recycling center will be uh, will be built within the municipality. So this is an example of something very remarkable that's happening on a local level. And the reason why I think that it's very important to continue to draw attention to the the initiatives that are happening locally is because failing to do so puts a lot of emphasis on foreign research. It puts a lot of emphasis on research that you and I might do and ideas that you and I might have about how conservation ought to be done in Volcan, but it erases the very valuable and remarkable work that has been done and that is presently actually being done uh, within the community. And it's assuming that that doesn't exist and, um, and, and it's a shame not to know what's happening. Yeah, totally. And I think this is a perfect way to actually transition into the methods section because sort of, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I hear you saying is this methodological interjection that you're making. Um, Before we talk about your actual methods, I want to talk about this broader methodological argument, which is actually the main argument of your dissertation again, right? That that to say that um, environmental conservation research takes up the colonial practice um, through those three assumptions that we already drew uh, that the the kind of top-down research that we do will free the local people um, or, or will uh, improve uh, the environment in which they live um, and that we will be sort of the ones to bring forth this emancipation. But um, so disregarding chapter one, because it's more of a history, but in chapter two, you're showing us that actually when we when we the the decolonial kind of methodological perspective there is to take a step back and to say, um, actually, Vindeco is quite intricately. I really loved the way that you framed it as this community member, right? It's, It's actually quite intricate intricately linked to the community as if uh, it were one of its members. Um, And we cannot, we cannot just forget, erase, or ignore community members when they're talking about this dependency to Pindeco. Um, and And then in the third chapter, you're saying, well, look at all of these other environmental initiatives that are taking place and the two examples that you gave us was uh, this monitoring of production at the national level 
and then this uh, very local recycling program in Volcan. And so when we're doing this kind of top-down colonialist work, we're erasing the other projects that are already going on, right? This idea, again, this very colonial idea of the terra incognita, right? As if nothing's already being done, we're imposing our perspectives um, on, on a land unknown or on, on uh, you know, a blank uh, kind of vessel. Um, so, so I would say um, that's, that's, that's what I hear you saying is your uh, overall methodological argument. But what I w- want to ask you about now is a little bit specifically about your methods, because I know that you've spent so many years in, in Costa Rica. So tell us, what, what are the methods? So I would say that your research is the epitome of an ethnography, really. Um, and so tell us more about that. Yeah, so um, I rely on an ethnography and ethnographic methods. So interviews, semi-structured interviews mostly, and con- conversations, right? Informal conversations, I would say, has been what has given me the most insight into um, into the the realities that we're dealing with uh, in Volcan, and uh, so I've I've been going back and forth, like I said, for for about ten years now, and uh, staying there in the community for you know several weeks to several months every time I go in. So one of the methods that I used in my master's research were actually video recorded interviews that I that were sort of amalgamated into a documentary. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about why this kind of method was why this method was uh, particularly important to me and that's because one of the priorities in any research that I do as an academic is that uh, is to include the community not only during the research but afterwards so the video recorded interviews were something that were left in the community afterwards Um, they're in Spanish so uh, it's something that community members can actually listen to and uh, connect with, uh, with English subtitles. So something that was also used here afterwards. Um, and there were a set of intergenerational interviews with the elders of the community down to, uh, I think the youngest participants were uh, 16 or whatever it is that ethics allows us to to do so um video and interviews were another method that that i use so we're looking at semi-structured interviews video recorded interviews um informal conversations and participant observation um all ethnographic methods over about 10 years wow how many total interviews did you do with the uh like face-to-face and then the video interview so uh, about 40 in total interviews, um, video recorded and semi-structured voice recorded interviews, and then, uh, you know, hundreds of informal con- conversations. 
And those informal conversations, they matter so much, right? You, you learn, so you might not be recording them, but you'll memo them after, or, you know, you'll make, they, they end up, the impressions that those conversations leave you with sometimes end up by being more long lasting than the data that you collect from those more formal interviews, correct? Absolutely. I mean, I think some of the, the most significant um, lessons that I've learned throughout my research has been through those informal conversations. You know, it's been through somebody going hunting or someone eating a, a sea turtle egg and me asking them whether or not they know how environmentally destructive it is to eat a sea turtle egg and then being met with this sort of resistance of, well, the kind of conservation that you're talking about doesn't really apply to our livelihoods here. You're not really taking the reality of our livelihoods into account when you come in with this and you impose this, which may or may not have been articulated in exactly that way. Um, but these very impactful conversations that sort of leave you with, you know, I, I came here thinking that I knew a whole lot about conservation and I'm being met with a little bit of resistance in terms of how applicable that knowledge actually was. And um, I really do think that, that that was those conversations were some of the most impactful and significant ones throughout my research. Totally, totally. Um, so I just kind of want to ask you a little bit about living in Costa Rica, because I know that you did spend months upon months during your numerous travels there, living there. So what was that like for you? You know, what was it like, uh, you know, um, spending spending time there away from your family, actually like be, being connected within these communities, um, you know, language barriers that you encountered. You're, you're fluent in Spanish now, but you weren't 10 years ago, right? So what was that like for you as a researcher? Um, very interesting experience, to say the least. Uh, I did go into to Costa Rica at first having very limited knowledge of Spanish. Um, I lived with a host family. Uh, one of the important things to me was to learn the language because I do, um, I mean, first of all, I have a love for languages, but really I do believe that there's so much history and so much culture that is packed into language. And it's so difficult to do an ethnography, at least an ethical one, in my opinion, uh, without actually being able to speak the language of the local community. Um, so it was it was a priority to me to learn Spanish going into Costa Rica. And uh, so I insisted on living with a family that did not speak uh, English at all. I did have the option of living with a family uh, with somebody who did speak English fluently. Um, that's not uh, that that wasn't what I wanted to do. So, uh, you know, it, it, there was a lot of a lot of miscommunications at the beginning from things like, you know, having eaten a huge meal and then being asked uh, whether or not I was full and not understanding the question and saying that I was not and <laughs> being served a whole other meal on top of it because I didn't understand what was being asked of me. Um, but really, my Spanish was very limited to that level. Um, and yes, now I do speak it fluently uh, and very comfortably. 
but it's challenging as an academic because you have to rely on somebody else to be sort of a, a mediator for you in your interviews. You can't connect in the same way. So, you know, now because I've been doing research there for so long, some of the community members have passed away now. So some of the people that I interviewed when I first went there are no longer around. And so I really wish that I could go back and talk to those people and ask more questions because when they were talking the first time, I had to rely on my very limited Spanish and then um, the, the person that I had who was helping me in the community to sort of translate what was being said and so it was a game of broken telephone and it wasn't really until later when I came back and I started to uh, edit the videos where my Spanish was a little bit better that I really started to understand what was being said and even now when I go back and I listen to those interviews from the first year that I was in Costa Rica I realized that there's still so much more that was um, that that was being said that I wish I would have been able to interact with. So as a researcher, um, language was definitely one of the the most interesting experiences that I had and uh, really seeing things in in a whole new um, light after having learned the language. Aside from that, living uh, apart from my family, I mean, um, of course, there are always challenges, but I think that I had the luxury of being very young when I started my research there. So um, I think you're not, you're a little more adaptable at a younger age. So uh, I had that on my side um, and just fortunate enough to meet people there who became family to me and who became just such close friends that I've been able to, uh, I've, I've had the privilege of maintaining in my life throughout all the years. So um, they, they definitely smoothed the transition for me in, into being able to live there. It's a very different lifestyle, um, very, very different culture in some ways. In some ways, it's, it, I find it's, it's very similar to to our Iranian culture, I would say. So there were parts of it that actually felt more like home and, and that was really nice. But there was definitely, it, it definitely became just another home. So, you know, life was what it was and it is what it is when I'm there and it is what it is when I'm here. And I don't really find myself um, missing my lifestyle here when I'm there. Right. That's super interesting. Um, so just two more questions I sort of wanted to ask you before we move to the literatures that you're contributing to. Uh, the first is vis-a-vis -vis the language. So, so you know, you do speak the language fluently now, but still you, I, I would say that you should, you still find yourself, um, you know, running into trouble with language because your interviews are all in Spanish, but you're analyzing the data and then writing a dissertation in English. So I'm wondering, you know, what kind of problems that's posed for you, if any. And then second of all, um, I'm, I want to ask you, so you know, I know that you're very, very close with the communities in Volcan that you've done research with um, to the point that they're your friends and if not family, like you just said, right? So how would you then reconcile the insider-outsider kind of position, this anthropological position of objectively being able to talk um, you know, to, to kind of uh, divorce your personal insights from your objective perspectives, or do you even wish to do that? And so if you can elaborate on that a little bit. 
Right. So um, the first question, language and the, the, the trouble that it has posed. Um, you're right. I, I do find myself in a little bit of a predicament sometimes analyzing and, and trying to articulate an analysis in English out of Spanish data. Um, sometimes it's easier than others, but sometimes something as simple as, I mean, for example, uh, some of the interviews that were done with the town elders, the language has even evolved within Volcan or within Costa Rica to the point that the language that they used or some of the words that they used or terms that are not really used or, or barely understood anymore. So a lot of it was a matter of, you know, listening to an interview 20 times and then calling five people to see if somebody could decipher what this person meant from this one word that they used. Um, and, uh, and, and so a lot of it, had to be dealt with in that way, involving a lot of people and asking for a lot of help in, in trying to understand just small parts that could end up being very significant in an interview. Um, so that was part of it. Um, you know, other challenges like writing English subtitles for all of your interviews in a documentary, that, that's another part of it. And then making sure that the message is not lost in translation and that you're doing an adequate job at, um, at translating and having a lot of eyes on it to make sure that other people who are looking at it from the community feel like it's being represented properly if they can do so because they speak Spanish and English, which doesn't happen often. So you can see how it gets a little bit challenging. Um, Aside from that, your second question was... Um, so the insider-outsider status and, and how you feel about that. Right. Uh, that's a really interesting question to me. I, I do feel that I have very genuine and significant relationships within the town. I don't know that I would ever assume that I'm an insider in the community in the sense of I try to be very uh, cautious with regards to things that I've experienced as a researcher living in the town um, and confusing that with an actual lived experience of somebody who uh, lives there uh, permanently. The reason, even somebody who lives there permanently, but who has another base here, I think that there are a lot of ethical considerations there. Um, and one of those things is that at the end of the day, if there is a storm and I'm left without water and things get really bad for me, I have an escape. I can come back here. So it's only, it's a, it might be a reality that I'm living, but it is a temporary reality and I have to be very aware of that. Um, and the extent to which I'm aware of that is to not confuse my own experiences with the realities of uh, community members that are actually living there. Uh, it, it does help me empathize or perhaps sympathize to a greater extent. Um, but I am very aware of the fact that uh, I, 
I do have a position of privilege that I cannot divorce myself from. However, the, the way in which that position as an insider does really affect me and affect me uh, as a researcher is that is because the relationships within the community are so deep now, the relationships that I've created in the community and because the friendships are very real and the connections are very deep, um, there is a certain level of trust and uh, that's something that is both very helpful and very challenging as a researcher because on the one hand, um, the people, and I think for anybody who's ever attempted to do any kind of ethnographic work, trust is very important. It's very hard to get information uh, from people or just to get people to talk to you or volunteer their time to sit down and talk to you about something, especially when you're talking about something that can be very sensitive, like their livelihoods or like the company that is, um, that, that their livelihoods can be very reliant on. So uh, it's, it's been, and I didn't always have that. So that's something that developed over the years um, and that, it, you know, having the, the position of being able to um, have more and more people that were willing to talk to me and willing to share their experiences with me. On the other hand, there's the, uh, there's the challenge, like I said, of because of that trust, that trust is reciprocal. Right. And so um, and and the that connection is reciprocal. And so the same I I hold that trust to uh, a very high. Um, I value it very highly. And so I'm even more wary of any kind of misrepresentation. And that can be debilitating sometimes as a researcher because you're constantly questioning whether or not you're doing somebody justice when you're analyzing their interview or whether you know something is a breach of trust or whether something that you're saying or writing about is ethical. Um, and so uh, it, it has definitely its, its ups and downs, but... Um, I know I wouldn't trade it. <laughs> okay, great. Okay, so let's move to the conversations that you're contributing to. So just to give you sort of an overview, when I ask you this question, I don't mean necessarily who are the scholars and, you know, to name them, but more if you were to talk to a general audience, what would you say your research, what kinds of conversations would you say your research is contributing to in the academic field? So, of course, on the one hand, there's the environmental conservation conversation, and which is a conversation that I hope to always be able to contribute to and be a part of, um, which is pretty self-explanatory, I think, the ways in which this research can contribute to that. On the other hand, there's a uh, con conversation of uh, development, um, in the global south, the intricacies that, that go into it and the complexities of development, food production, agricultural expansion, all of this stuff. These are sort of the more general uh, topics that I think that uh, 
I, I believe this research contributes to. But on the other hand, we've got this conversation of how we ought to decolonize this kind of research. And that's what I'm particularly interested in. So how do we continue to conduct this kind of research without perpetuating colonial research habits? And that uh, anti-colonial perspective is what that's the conversation that I'm really interested in so um, without getting too much into the the more academic and theoretical aspects of it um, I you know I rely a lot on subaltern studies I rely on um, Frarian pedagogy and sort of like grassroots pedagogy um, and things like that the question that I ask myself continuously is how knowledge in the global south is valued differently and how can how can we change that how can we change our way of perceiving um, knowledge and realities in the places in which we're doing research and really you know one of the things that I that I come back to often in my research is you know believe them believe your research participants when they're talking to you don't assume another reality that is other than what they are telling you. They're giving you their time and trusting you with their reality. And the least that we can do as researchers is to believe what they're telling us and, and draw an analysis from what is being presented to us rather than you know, translating what's being said to us in, in another way. So that kind of decolonial approach to this kind of research that's the that's the conversation that I'm I'm very interested in fantastic so fascinating and interesting um I I do want to ask you relatedly about the practical or your desired practical outcomes so you know not your desired outcomes overall but practically um and I think you kind of answered it just now um but practically what do you hope that your research will um achieve so I can say a couple of things about this. Um, you know, on the one hand, I I hope that it's something that um, it's research that involves the participants. I hope that it's research that can give back to the community. Um, and I'm working. I'm I'm interested in working with communities to uh, develop strategies that contribute to environmental conservation in ways that are initiated by the communities. Um, so, you know, bring existing conservation um, to light uh, within those communities. But there's also, you know, I've often asked myself over the last decade, I've asked myself, okay, so if, if I were to do something, what's an idea of a project that could really practically come out of this? Um, and I used to think about it in that very emancipatory, emancipatory way that we've talked about um but now you know i think about what if a, an education um program existed within volcan where people from toronto could go to volcan and uh learn about conservation practices there and conservation practices are uh, are more than even 
the recycling programs and things like that that we've talked about. It, um, it could be conservation practices like composting within somebody's backyard or um, horticulture and, you know, growing uh, plants and herbs and stuff like that in, in your own backyard, which is often things that in a very urban lifestyle we don't see a whole lot of. So, you know, what can a, a local perspective on composting, on growing um, plants and herbs and fruit and things like that, uh, very small-based farming, um, and all of this local knowledge of the land, how can that contribute to uh, a, a dialogue with a very different lifestyle here, for example? How could a program, if I can paint you a picture of my dream program, how could a program where a student from here or anybody who is wanting to learn from here goes into Volcan and um, there's like this reciprocity of, uh, you know, learning from the community and perhaps exchanging some kind of knowledge within with the community um, that creates opportunities for people in the community that are involved in it to uh, to to share uh, the things that they know that are very related to conservation um, without trying to necessarily target existing employment. So Pindeco, you know, how are other, how can other uh, opportunities arise? Or, you know, I, I really see that as an example of something that could exist within the community that does not, and, and Pindeco could be involved in it. And I think that that's something that, um, that's one of the opportunities that's missed sometimes is the the involvement that Pindeco can have and has had in terms of tree planting and donating trees to schools and things like that. Um, how can projects work either uh, parallel to Pindeco or with the company to, uh, to create other sorts of opportunity in terms of conservation? So interesting. And you know what? I have always admired this so much about your research mind. Um, and it's something that's rare is that I find, you know, right now when I asked you about the desired practical outcomes, mo the most kind of common answer that you usually get when people are asked about the outcomes of their research is how the dissertation will move, how the text um, and the production of this, you know, body of work will be productive um, in the future, right? So it's usually the result is the dissertation or the articles or whatever, and the practical outcomes, those will be the means and the practical outcomes um, are the ends uh, that those, that research body fulfills. And so what I really admire about your research is that you're, you're already telling us that you know, the methodologies themselves and the process itself and, um, you know, uh, these connections that you've built are part of trying to create practical outcomes that go just beyond writing your thesis or writing this book, right? And of course, the book itself is very important. I'm not denying that, but I just admire so much that you're taking it one step ahead 
um, and thinking about, you know, just these multifaceted ways of impacting social change in the conservation world. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think that um, I, for a while I had, when I felt especially stuck in my research, when I felt like I wasn't really sure where my research was going, uh, and when I was being met with things that weren't really fitting the narrative that I was building in my head uh, when I started this research, uh, I would often satisfy myself with the idea that, well, my job as an academic isn't to really think of the solutions. My job is to produce the knowledge, and then hopefully my knowledge production will help somebody else find a solution. Um, and I think that can still be true to, to some extent. Knowledge production is very valuable. But I think that for me, at least, I needed to be able to at least envision something that could come out of this. So I'm talking about looking at the multifaceted intricacies and realities of the community and the interconnectedness of the community and the company and all of these things. Um, I'm talking about the importance of being able to understand all of that. But the question is, what does understanding that do? And the answer to that for me is, well, once we understand that you can't just get rid of Pindeco, once we understand why you can't do that and what the company means to the community, once we understand what is presently being done within the community uh, in terms of environmental conservation and what is important to community members, only then can we really start to say, okay, so from there, what kind of project can arise from that? Well, maybe an education project, maybe a conservation project, but a kind of conservation project that is anti-colonial in nature. And I think that that's, uh, that's really what has shifted for me and what's been very significant to me in my research trajectory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very fascinating. Um, I think that th those are all my questions. I mean, as per usual, I always want to continue. Um, but I think that, you know, that really neatly sums up your research. And, and I really want to thank you for joining us and for having had this really interesting conversation with me and for sharing your research, which I think is invaluable and so important. And for having the courage to sort of go against the grain with the type of research that you're doing. I'm sure that the listeners are really, really going to enjoy uh, this episode. So thank you so much, Afshan, for joining us. Thank you for having me and for doing this podcast. I really must say that I really enjoy listening to every episode and I am honored to have been a part of it. That just about does it for today's episode. Once again, we'd like to thank you for joining us on the InSearch podcast. If you'd like to share your own original research on the program, please reach out to us through the link in the show notes. As always, we love to hear from you. So hit us up on Twitter at Podcast InSearch or email us at InSearchPodcast at gmail.com. Since we absolutely adore your feedback, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes or your podcast player of choice. Doing so helps us reach a wider audience, share cutting-edge research, and make our world a better place. Consider subscribing so you don't miss out on the next great episode. Until then, stay curious. Stay curious.